appreciate that prayer, and uh, as always, I ask that I would continue to continue to pray um, that the Lord would meet with us, um, and that uh, I would be able to really just kind of fade to the background, and that uh, His truths would be magnified, most of all, that His Son would be high and lifted up. I'm going to read a couple of verses, I'm not going to stay in it, so you can flip if you want to, but this is just the idea of where we're going. It's in Philippians chapter 3, and starting in verse 8, the Apostle Paul says, Yea, doubtless I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win or gain Christ, and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering, being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. This morning... My desire for you and for me is that I would know Him more and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His suffering. And so what I would like to look at this morning is the worst day in history. It's the crime that surpasses all crimes when the only truly innocent person to walk this planet was wrongfully condemned, mocked, punished, and slain. If we want to know more about our Lord, we must know about this day. This will be painful to hear. Let me rephrase that. This should be painful to hear. If you can listen to what I'm going to relay and it does not bother you, that should bother you. This should break your heart. And sometimes our hearts need to be broken. They get hard. They get calloused. They see the things of this world and they can hear the truths of Jesus, but they become mere platitudes towards us. A platitude is just an expression that means nothing to you. Okay. So we're going to start in the garden. Jesus has had the Last Supper with His disciples. He has laid aside His garments. He has girded Himself with a towel. He has washed their feet. He has dipped the sop and told Judas, that what you're going to do, do it quickly. And Judas has gone out. He has had His final messages to His disciples. There is their walking to the Mount of Olives. John chapter 14 
or 15, 16, and 17. And he reaches the garden. And let, let, me, let me try to explain what I want you to do as you're listening to this. As you read these stories, and as I read these stories, I often try to think about it as in Israel, right? Way over there where it actually occurred. And that's fine, except for that's very far away. And it's easy with great distance to be removed from it. And so for the sake of this morning, I'd like with you, with your your mind's eye and your imagination, to envision that everything that I'm describing is taking place right here, in front of you. Imagine that you can see Jesus taking those few disciples farther into the garden, and then going a little farther, and bowing down and praying. Praying to His Heavenly Father, knowing what He's about to go through. You and I get anxious when hard times are coming. Right? You ever had that call or conversation? You know this is going to be rough. And you get kind of fretful, right? Most of our fretting is because we don't know how it's going to go. He knew. He knew how bad it was going to be. Every jot and every tittle, right, to the smallest detail, he knew what he was about to go through. His spirit was willing. He was obedient to the Father. But he was bound in flesh. This is the God-man. This is the one who was able to get tired was able to get hungry, was able to feel pain. And this is why he is bowing down, earnestly praying for the Father, that if it's your will, to take away this cup. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. This was a physically exerting pressure that he was under. It's like he was being squeezed so much that the sweat was rolling out of him more than you've ever had on your best workout or yard work, whatever. It was just like great drops of blood. It wasn't actually blood, but it was the sweat pouring out in huge drops of how distressed he was. And you see him praying, and, and what, what are his friends doing? Sleeping. Sleeping, right? This is the most climactic period in the history of the world and his friends don't know it all they know is they're tired we've had a long day we've kept the the passover feast together in the upper chamber he's talked to us for a great deal of time one of us left we're now sitting out here it's dark it's late jesus is praying over the course of hours and they fall asleep and he wakes them up and they fall asleep again Jesus is alone in this process. He is already bearing what men can't. This is so rigorous on his body that God sends an angel to strengthen him. I'll read before I go further. Luke 22 and starting in verse 39 says, He went out as he was known to do, want to do, to the Mount of Olives. And his disciples also followed him. And when he was at that place, he said unto them, Pray that you enter not into temptation. And when he was withdrawn from them, about a stone's cast. So see the disciples sitting over there. About as far as you can throw a stone, here he is praying. And 
and saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. That cup of wrath, everything that he was going to have to endure. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will, thine be done. And there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. He's now been strengthened and he prays more. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly in his sweat as it was, as it were, a simile, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose up from prayer, he was come to his disciples and he found them sleeping for sorrow and said unto them, Why sleep ye? Rise and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. And he did this multiple times. It's not recounted here in Luke. And I'm, I'm going to have to paraphrase some today. And so y'all go be noble Bereans and go read all four gospel accounts and make sure that you get the exact language that's there. But after he's had this time of prayer and he's been strengthened and he prayed some more, then a group comes. It's the middle of the night. He has been openly teaching in the synagogue. Right? He came back, you know, Palm Sunday, right? It's when they celebrate him coming into Jerusalem. He'd been openly teaching. I mean, he went into the temple for the second time and cleaned it out, right? You got oxen and goats and sheep in there, and he's flipping the money changers' tables. He's saying, Get out! He's got a little whip in his hand. Maybe it's girth. Driving these animals out of his father's house. This is my father's house. It should be a house of prayer, and he made it a den of thieves, right? He's been available. But for fear of the people, the high priest wouldn't take action. They didn't want to deal with the people who believed him stoning them. Right? So they're trying to protect their own skin. And so Judas, who had left the Last Supper, he'd already made arrangements with the chief priest saying, what, what will you give me to betray him? 30 pieces of silver. It's fine, fair enough. And so this is him following through. He goes to him and says, I've got a good opportunity. You give me the men, we'll go take him. When we get there, I'll show you which one he is by giving him a kiss. So over in John chapter 18, when Judas had spoken these words, he went over forth of his disciples to the brook Sidron. He went in the garden, which he entered, and his disciples. And Judas also, which betrayed him, knew the place, garden in Gethsemane. For Jesus oft times resorted thither and with his disciples. Judas then, having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees. These are officers who reported to the priests. They were their personal soldiers. Okay? And cometh thither with lanterns and torches and weapons. They brought a mob. This is a lynch mob. That's, that's what they're, they're doing. They're going to, to gather him. Has he done anything to be threatening? Has he done anything to warrant this? No. And who's leading the pack? Judas. One of his own. I want you, I want you to imagine you're sitting there, that stone throws away, and Jesus has come over to talk to you and to wake you up and say, here, here they come. 
and you look and you see a man leading them that you've been standing shoulder to shoulder with for three years. This is your brother in the faith. And here he is leading the pack. And you see him go up to your master and give him a kiss and say, Hail, master. Jesus responds, Judas, betrayest thou me with a kiss? Verse 4, And Jesus therefore, knowing all things that should come unto him, went forth and said unto them, Whom seek ye? And they answered and they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Who's the mob looking for? They're looking for him. And he said unto them, I am. And they all fell backwards. The voice of God spoke to them in the same expression of how he revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush. I am that I am. Jesus, the God-man, said, I am, and they fell backwards. Did they have any power to take him if he didn't want to go? Not a bit. They stood back up, and he asked them again, Who seek ye? I imagine they're a little bothered at this point. This is not the way a mob should go. We've got numbers on our side. We've got the weapons. We've got the lanterns. You're out here in the dark. You've got what, 12? 12. Eleven plus you, twelve. And they've already been physically knocked on their tuchuses. And no one's touched them. Whom seek ye? Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I've told you. I am. If therefore you seek me, let these go their way. Who is he protecting? His disciples. His 11 disciples that were there, he's saying, you just told me, you're seeking me. I've said, I'm him. Let these go. Now, Simon Peter is a very bold man. And he had a sword. And he thought, if this is how it's going to go, we're going to go down in a blaze of glory. Right? He wanted to defend his Lord. He drew his sword and he starts hacking. (laughs) He swung. You know what happened? He missed somebody's head and he got their ear. I don't know how you do that. Doesn't say he got his shoulder. I mean, he just lopped off his ear. He was one of the servants of the high priest. He even tells his name, Malchus. This is verse 10. Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and smote, off the high, and smote the high priest and cut off his right ear. The Bible gave you details. His right ear. He said it was the, he just said it was the high priest. The high priest's servant. Verse 10, let's listen. Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and smote the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So I may have not spoken very clearly, but that's, that's what Scripture says. And then Jesus said, yeah, get him! No. Put up thy sword into thy sheath. The cup which my Father hath given me, shall I not drink it? This was part of the cup. This was part of God's plan. When you look at predestination, in other words, that the Greek word that that comes from, it appears in two different contexts. One, in talking about God's children. Now, they are going to be predestinated to be conformed to the image of God's Son. 
You are going to be holy and without blame before him in love and adopted into his family. That's one context. The other context is the work of Jesus Christ. You cannot have the second, the first one without Jesus' work. This was going to happen. Okay? Put up your sword. Now, uh, there's another description that's given. I think it's in Matthew. And I want you to listen to what Jesus says to Simon. Put up thy sword into thy place. For all that take the sword shall perish with the sword. Thinkest thou I cannot now pray to my Father, and he shall presently give me more than twelve legions of angels? Did he need Simon's sword? Does he need your sword? We know that the firepower of one angel is enough to wipe out 185,000 men in one night. One! I don't know how many are in a legion. If it's 1,000, you're talking 12,000. It's a big old number. That's enough firepower to wipe out every breathing person on the planet with one go. More. More than a good point. More. Right? He was willingly going into this. They did not have power over him. He is voluntarily allowing himself to be taken. And he said in that same hour to the multitude, all right, verse 54, but how then shall the Scripture be fulfilled that thus it must be? He says, if I did that, then all the Scriptures that pointed to my work would not be fulfilled. And I am obedient to my Father's will. This is what must be. And in the same hour, Jesus said to the multitude, Are you come out as against a thief with, with swords and staves to take me? I sat daily with you teaching in the temple, and you laid no hands on me. But all this was done that the scripture of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples forsook and fled. Are we still imagining here? You've got the mob surrounding him. They've laid hands on him. One of yours tried to fight. And the master said, no. I have a sufficient army that could take care of Everything, if I called it, but this must be so. How sad. How confusing. For you as a disciple, we followed you for three years, and you're just going to let them take you. They didn't understand. He's told them to let you go, and they flee. Now Peter is going to follow a long way off. And John's going to follow as well. And so if you go back to John chapter 18, if you want to see where I'm at. The band and the captain of the officers of the Jews took Jesus and bound him. They took some form of rope or chain, I don't know what it was. But they restrained the body of the Word. And they led him away. They led him first to Ananias. There's the high priest. His name was Caiaphas. His father-in-law was Ananias. And so they lead Jesus to him. It's the middle of the night. 
the high priest, everybody, they know this is going on. They gave them in. And so they're, they're, they're ready. And Ananias sends him on down to the high priest's palace, which is Caiaphas's place. Now Caiaphas is the one which gave counsel to the Jews earlier that it was expedient for one man should die for the people. And the way he meant it, he thought, if we take out this guy, then our nation can continue to exist under the Roman Empire. But you and I know that the Lord used him to prophesy in a way that he didn't mean about one man dying for all of his people. All right. And so we know that Simon Peter followed, and so did another disciple. And John was known to the high priest. Somehow he was known and he was able to go in. Simon Peter was not. No, we don't know you. You can't come in. It's the middle of the night. Go away. And so John came down and brought him in. And so he hung out, sitting around a campfire with the mob. Right? Those that had just arrested him. You know, these are the, the do-the-dirty-work guys, not your high priest who are going to be interrogating him. They're sitting around the campfire out in the porch, the courtyard, and he's around the folks that he has just fled from. Who saw him cut off somebody's ear? Who I bet he's not armed anymore. And it turns out one of the guys who's sitting there was the family member of Malchus. Okay? It gives you a little bit more color to him sitting there. All right? Let's go over to verse 19. The high priest then asked Jesus of his disciples and of his doctrine. And Jesus answered him, I spake openly to the world. I ever taught in the synagogue and in the temple, whether the Jews always resort, and in secret I have said nothing. He said, I have been publicly speaking. Why are you coming to ask what I've said? Why askest thou me? Ask them which heard me what I have said unto them. Behold, they know what I've said. And what happens next? One of the officers there thinks that his answer is impertinent. And so he struck him with the palm of his hand. I can't be 100% sure, but I believe this is the first blow that landed on your Lord for you. It was a slap. didn't have to take it. But he did. He bore it. And it's only going to get worse and worse and worse. He struck him with the palm of his hand saying, Answerest thou the high priest so? And Jesus answered him saying, If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, if I've spoken well, why smitest thou me? Go back to Matthew and look at that scene. The high priests wanted to have their story straight. This was the meeting before the meeting. Okay, This is a small inner circle, and they wanted to know what they were going to charge him with when the day came. So this is Matthew 26. 
and they're seeking false witnesses. Somebody to say what we can accuse us with. Get two or three to, to lie about it. Problem was, is they had guy after guy after guy talk, and nobody agreed. Right? They were conflicting witnesses, so they didn't they didn't have what they needed. And the high and Jesus wasn't answering any of the charges. And the high priest got frustrated and arose. This is verse sixty two says, "Answerest thou nothing? What it is that these witness against thee?" But Jesus held his priest his peace. He didn't talk. And the high priest answered and said unto them, "I adjure thee, I, I, I command thee by the living God." that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said unto him, Thou hast said. Nevertheless, I say unto you, Hereafter ye shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Now in another gospel, it's Mark, Mark 14, he again uses the expression, I am. Verse 61 of Mark 14 says, Art thou the Christ, the Son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And ye shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. High priest knows we got him now. We don't need witnesses. He's just said it. He is admitted to be the Son of God. That's blasphemy. What need we of further witnesses? So he he rips his clothes. What need we of further witnesses? Ye have heard the blasphemy. What think ye? And they all condemned him to be guilty of death. So they have a vote. He's guilty. How do they begin to treat him? Begin to spit on him. They begin to spit on him. Right? And to. It's okay. We can talk about it more at the lunchroom. They begin to spit on him. Then they cover his face. And to buffet him. And to say unto him, Prophesy! And the servants did strike him with the palms of their hands. So you've got servants slapping him. You've got officers buffeting. That means hitting with a closed fist. They put a bag or blindfolded him or something, and they're mocking him. They're holding him in such low regard. Oh, you're a prophet? Wham! Who hit you? Tell us. This is not far away. Right here. This is your Lord. This is the beginning of the suffering that he went through for you and for me and for every single one of his children. And then Peter is challenged three times with, are you, are you with him? Do you know this man? I think I saw you there. You talk like a Galilean, and in each one, he's getting more and more passionate about, no, 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 until at the end, he's cursing and he's swearing, I don't know the man! And when he said that third time, he was within Jesus' line of sight, because Jesus turned and looked at him. And then he remembered. And he realized what he'd done. 
He had just promised Jesus, I'll never leave you. I'm willing to go with you to the death. And he followed through on that when it was going to be a mighty going down in a blaze of glory. We're outnumbered. I've got my sword. Let me hack at somebody. We're going to defend him. If I die, I die. But to sit here when I'm defenseless, he's already bound. I can't do anything. If I open my mouth, I'm going to be condemned too. Yeah, Jesus let me get away from the mob. That doesn't mean they're going to let me get away. And so rather than be associated with him, he denies him. Jesus knows it. He looks at him. This is his friend. One who has followed him for three years. And he denies him. When the morning was come, they lead him to a place where all the council of the Jews gather. You had this kind of small pool here. When the morning came, they got everybody together and they consult. What are they going to do? It's in Luke uh, 22 that we see that portion. Luke 22. And as soon as it was day, all right, so this has all been going on in the night. The time of darkness, the power of darkness, when Jesus had said to them, um, when they come to take him to the garden, this is your hour, the power of darkness. Now the day is coming. As soon as it was day, the elders, this is verse 66 of chapter 22 of Luke, the elders of the people and the chief priests and the scribes came together and led him into their council and saying, Art thou the Christ? Tell us. They wanted him to repeat it. He'd already admitted it to the smaller group. They want him to repeat it here in front of everybody. He says, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer me, nor let me go. So there's, there's no point to talk to you. If I told you, you wouldn't believe me. And if I asked you questions, you wouldn't answer them. And you're not going to let me go. So he said, Hereafter shall the Son of Man sit on the right hand of the power of God. Then said they all, Art thou then the Son of God? They knew what he was saying. They wanted him to clarify, be explicit. Are you saying you're the Son of God? And he said unto them, You say that I am. He's not denying it. And they again said, What need we have further witnesses? For we ourselves have heard this of his own mouth. Got him. Now this mouth is probably already bruised. It's probably already bleeding. He's been getting knocked around. After the first one, they had to have something to do until daylight came when they had this council. I can't imagine he was sitting peacefully. And the whole multitude of them arose and led him away to Pilate. Let's go back over to John 18 to continue. John 18 and 28. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas under the hall of judgment, and it was early. 
This didn't take long. It was early in the morning when they gathered together the whole council. They condemned him and they lead him over to the Romans. It was early and they themselves went not into the judgment hall lest they should be defiled but that they might eat the Passover. So with their rules of cleanliness that they had added upon themselves, they were not going to go inside the Roman government structure that they had for judgment. And so instead, Pilate would have to come out to them, and you'd have this shuttle game, Pilate going out, going in, coming out. So Pilate comes out and he says, What accusation bring ye against this man? And they said, basically, don't worry about it. If he wasn't a bad guy, we wouldn't have brought him to you. If he were not a malefactor, we have not have delivered him up to thee. Say, we're not here to talk specifics. We just want you to kill him. You do your thing, right? Execute him. We've already tried him. Doesn't matter about the charges. Now, they would give him the accusation um, after that, and that's in Luke 23, too, where it'd say, here's his accusation. They began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to give tribute to Caesar, which he never did, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. That's the accusation. He said that he is Christ, a king. Jesus says, Take ye him and judge him according to your law. And the Jews therefore said, It is not lawful for us to put any man to death, that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spake, signifying what death he should die. I don't know if under Roman law they weren't authorized to crucify, because Pilate will pop off later and say, Take him and crucify him yourself. And we know that when it came to the martyrdom of Stephen, they were more than willing to take up stones and just deal with it. But something within this let you know that they're talking about him being crucified. That the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which spoke signifying what death he should die. They're bringing him under the Romans, so he should have a Roman death of crucifixion. Which is such a horrible, horrible way to die. We have laws in this country against cruel and unusual punishment. When we try to execute a criminal, we try to make it down to the microsecond as painless as possible. And in fact, there's many stays of execution because they can't guarantee that the individual will feel no pain. All right? That's why you've got all these issues with the, the, the drugs and lethal injection is that they can't get the ones they were before, and they're not certain that the new ones will be without pain. Okay? This is the exact opposite of that. This execution is designed for the most pain to be the longest, most excruciating torture and that ends in your death. It takes hours and hours and hours and hours. Jesus is going to die in a span of about six hours and Pilate's going to go, really, it's already done? That was fast. Somebody go check and make sure. Don't think about this way far off. Yes, 2,000 years is a long time ago. But this is very, very, very relevant to you and to me now. 
So Pilate has heard their charge. He said he's, they say he's the Christ, the king. He goes back inside the judgment hall. He takes Jesus with him to interrogate him, to talk to him. It's verse 33. And he asks him, Are thou the king of the Jews? Jesus said, Sayest thou this thing of thyself, or did others tell it of thee? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Thine own nation and the chief priests have delivered me up unto thee. What hast thou done? And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight. Who are those servants? Now, you and I, it's those legions of much more capable fighting servants. Right? Those legions of angels. Then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered into, to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. Pilate therefore answered, Art thou a king then? And Jesus answered, Thou sayest I am a king, and to this end was I born. And for this cause came I into the world, came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. The same voice that called Lazarus from that grave, that's the voice that calls you out of your depth of, of death, your spiritual death, and your dead in trespasses and sins. It's the voice of the Son that calls you to life and live. And you know what? You live. And one day we'll be able to hear His voice with much better ears. They won't require any hearing aids, right? We'll have perfect ears and we'll be able to hear the voice of the Son of God. That's when His kingdom will be here. But it won't be in this corrupt form of a world. It will be a perfect world. Pilate didn't understand a lick of what he's saying. He says, what is truth? And then he went back out to the Jews and he says, I find no fault in him. Right? I don't... I've got nothing that I can kill this guy for. Right? So what do the high priests do? They stir up the people. This is Luke 23, down in verse 4. It says, I find no fault in the man. And they were the more fierce, saying, He stirreth up the people. Additional accusation. Jesus stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Jewry, all the nation of Israel, wherever that is, all the people, beginning at Galilee. That's way up in the north. That's like the hinterlands. That's like saying, He started way up there, and He's come all the way to this place, the capital where all things good about Jews exist, right? Now, in Pilate, now he's a he's a politician, and he's looking for a way that he doesn't have to deal with this. So when he heard Galilee, he's like, "Oh, I might have an out." And he says, "Is, is this guy a Galilean?" He says, "Yes." He says, "Send him to Herod. Herod's over Galilee. That's his jurisdiction. He happens to be in town. You take him over there and let him deal with him, right?" Not my problem. So they do. Now Herod had heard about Jesus, right? He had beheaded John the Baptist, and he heard about Jesus, and some people are saying, well, 
That's John the Baptist. He's back from the dead. He may have he thought that himself, right? There's all these miracles. This is kind of interesting. I'd really like to see this fellow. I mean, it's like the magicians come to town. I'd like to see his act, right? And so he's, he's excited. It's early in the morning. This is something to do. Come on in. And he starts asking him questions and questions and questions. And Jesus says, nothing. It's a really boring act. I'm not excited about this. And so he turns him over to his soldiers. He's been accused of being a king. And so this is the first time when the soldiers take a robe and they dress him up like a king. And they send him on back to Pilate. Okay. That's verse 8. And Herod saw Jesus. He was exceedingly glad for his desires to see him of a long season because he had heard many things of him and he hoped to see some miracle done by him. And he questioned him in many words, but he answered him, nothing. And the high priest and scribe stood and vehemently accused him. And Herod, with his men of war, set him at naught. They held him in disesteem. They treated him like he was the jester, like the public fool. They set him at naught and mocked him and arrayed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. So he's privately mocked before the leaders. You claim you're a king? Okay, here, we're going to dress you up like a king. Hey, king. Get him out of here. Send him back to Pilate. And he comes back to Pilate, and Pilate is still trying to figure out a way of this. He doesn't think this guy, he hasn't found anything with which he can condemn him. Pilate said to the men, you brought this man unto me. So he's outside talking to him again, right? You brought this man unto me as one that perverted the people. Behold, I've examined him before you and found nothing. Fault in this man touching the things where you accuse him. No, nor yet Herod. Herod didn't say kill him, right? He didn't get anything out of him. He was silent. For I sent him, you sent you to him, and lo, nothing worthy of death is done unto him. So here's a solution. Here's a middle ground. You don't like him. He knew that he was being turned over for envy and jealousy. Here's the middle ground. I'll punish him, and then I'll let him go. We even have this tradition with this feast of where you get to have one prisoner released. I'll let him go. For of necessity, he must release one of them. And they cried away. Well, I'd say, away with this man, release and does Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was one who took up arms... Against the Roman government, against somebody, he's causing a sedition, right? Like the Jokers who stormed the Capitol a couple years ago, right? That kind of thing, only worse. They were killing folks. He was a murderer. Like they knew he has murdered people. And they're saying, no, we prefer him. Okay? So if you go back to John 18, you'll see that at this point, he follows through on his offer goes ahead and turns him over to scourge him. Scourge means to whip. Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him. We can read that and we can not think about it. Imagine Jesus is standing right there. And they're taking a whip. And they're hitting him. His skin is breaking, his muscles are lacerating, his nerves are on fire, and it's blow after blow after blow after blow. Why is he taking those blows? 
for you. This is what it meant in the Old Testament. It says, it's by His stripes we are healed. These are the stripes. This would not have been a short process. This is not measured out in small doses in love. We've all gotten paddled before. And almost all the time, the person who's doing it loves us. Some of you older folks may have got it from the principal when that was still allowed, but <laughs> even then, he had to report to somebody about the severity. Okay, Roman soldiers. Pilate here is looking for a way out. So they're going to whip him badly. They're going to embarrass him. They're going to bring him down to nothing by this physical abuse. And Pilate's thinking, this may be enough to placate him. And so he's whipped. His body is on fire. His face is already probably swollen shut from his previous beatings. And now he's getting assaulted over and over and over again. And then the soldiers get him. Right? Herod's already provided this nice robe. Hey, that gives us an idea. Let's make him look like a king. He's all bloody and beaten now. Let's take his clothes off of him. Array him in this robe. Yo, and he needs a crown. Guys, what are we going to do for a crown? Thorns. Hey, that's kind of pointy, right? Make thorns. Jams it on his head. Kings have scepters, right? The sign of power. Let's give this mock king a scepter. Well, we'll get this, this reed. All right? Now, this reed was strong enough for them to beat him with it. All right? This is not a little flimsy reed you think a water reed. This is, this is a more substantial reed. Otherwise, it would have broken on the first blow. But they gave him this, arrayed him in the robe, and then they mocked him. Lord, this is the Lord of glory. This is his creation abusing him. And so this is the mockery of what will actually happen one day. They bowed the knee. And said, Hail, king. And they didn't mean it. They didn't care. They're making fun of him. You fool. You think you're a king? Your own people don't want you. One day, those knees will hit the floor. And they will acknowledge, You are king. Whether they like it or not, he is king. But he allowed himself to be mocked and abused and defamed. And so they, they, Hail, King! And then they started smoting him some more. Slapping him, punching him. You go to Mark 15. You see this scene recorded in greatest detail. Mark 15 and verse 15. The soldiers led him into the hall called the Praetorium, and they called together the whole band. Hey, everybody, you're on guard duty. You're, you're asleep. Come on. We got something to do. They clothed him with the purple, plaited a crown of thorns, and put it upon his head, and began to salute him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they smote him on the head with the reed. And they spit upon him, bowing their knees, worshiping him. publicly mocked. No, this is privately mocked. This is inside. 
He's been privately mocked at Herod. He's now been privately mocked inside. And then while he's in this garb, in John chapter 18, it says, Pilate led him outside. He went forth and said, Behold, I bring him forth to you that ye may know I find no fault in him. And then came Jesus forth, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said unto them, Behold the man. See the man there. What does he look like? He's a bloody mess. Arrayed as a mock king. Being publicly displayed as a spectacle. On your worst enemy, I don't care who you are, if your worst enemy was in that condition, you'd, you'd get sick. This is enough. But it didn't end there. The chief priest, therefore, and the officers saw him. They cried out, Crucify! Crucify! We want him dead. Pilate said, Take ye him and crucify him, for I have found no fault in him. Basically, I've, I've, I've gone as far as I'm willing to go. I've done this to an innocent man. And Jesus, the Jews, answered and said, We have a law, and by our law he ought to die because he made himself the Son of God. And Pilate therefore heard that saying, He was the more afraid. Now he had already received a note earlier in the morning from his wife. And she said, have nothing to do with that just man. I had a dream this night. It, it, was, it bothered her about him. Have nothing to do with him. And so he's afraid. And so we leave the public scene. He goes back inside and he asks Jesus, where are you from? Whence art thou? Where did you come from? But Jesus didn't give an answer. Pilate is probably frustrated at this point. Speakest thou not unto me? Knowest not that I have the power to crucify thee and have the power to release thee? And Jesus answered, Thou couldst have no power at all against me except it were given thee from above. This was part of the Father's plan. This was part of the plan of salvation, of redemption. This was foreordained that this was going to happen before the world started spinning. He says, therefore, he that delivered me unto thee hath the greater sin. And from thenceforth, Pilate sought to release him. He tried to find a way out of it. But the Jews cried out, saying, If thou let this man go, thou art not Caesar's friend. Whosoever maketh himself a king speaketh against Caesar. You know what happens to those who speak against Caesar? They die. Caesars are not real friendly to those who are saying there's somebody more powerful than you. Right? This is a threat on Pilate's life, on his job, on his family, that we will say that you are not Caesar's friend because you're advocating for this other king if you let him live. He's got no other choices. His own skin is now on the line. Pilate therefore heard that. He brought Jesus forth, take him back outside, sat down in the judgment seat in the place that is called the pavement. In Hebrew, it's called Gabbatha. 
and it was the preparation of the Passover, and it was about the sixth hour, and he said, Behold your king! And they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answer and says, We have no king but Caesar. And then Pilate delivered him therefore unto them to be crucified. They took back off his clothes, the fancy clothes. They put him in his old ones. Which are now soaked with blood. And they put a heavy cross on him. It would be unpleasant to bear when you're feeling well. Much less after enduring a night and morning of torture. Having that weight put on your exposed and raw flesh and nerves. Pressing those garments into your shoulder. And they led him outside of the city. Somewhere along the way they had Simon the Cyrenian take... uh, portion of the cross or at the same time I don't know exactly but he was included in this process and they take him up to the hill Golgotha which means the place of a skull this is not a pretty place this is not a happy place sometimes we sing about Calvary and it sounds like a pretty thing this is horrible what came out of it was great This place is horrible. And as if he hasn't been brought low enough after all these spectacles, they then strip him naked. And his bruised, bleeding body is exposed to the world. Old Testament would say that his visage, his face, was marred more than any man's. Said that they even plucked out his beard. The New Testament doesn't record that, but I'm confident that it occurred. And they laid out on this cross, and they took those big nails or spikes, and they pounded him through his hands and his feet. And they took a sign. And they put it on the top of it. This is, this is the charge. This was his accusation. You know, the guy on the left, thief. Guy on the right, thief. His charge. This is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews, written in Greek and Latin and Hebrew, so that everybody passing by could see who it was. And they lift him up. And then the folks sit down to watch the show. The soldiers begin to have a game of lottery to divide the spoils. I mean, what are they arguing over? Some blood-soaked rags, basically. Each of them got a part, and then with a coat that didn't have a seam, they said, well, let's not rip it. Let's just have a little game of dice or chance here to see who wins it. And they're doing that 
as they sat down beneath the cross, as he is bleeding, suffering with every every breath. He's got to pull up against those spikes in his hands to get one more. Because you die in the crucifixion by lack of breath. That's why they came and broke the thieves' legs. Is when your legs are broken, you can't pull up anymore and you drown. Lack of air. This is awful. Is this painful to think about? I hope it is. If we want to have knowledge of our Lord and fellowship with His suffering, we have to think about His suffering and why He was there. Did He deserve any of this? Who deserved it? I did. And worse. Chief priests are there. They're watching. They're mocking. If you're really the Son of God, like you claim, come down from that cross. Just levitate on down. And then we'll believe. And the people that are walking by, they're wagging their heads, saying, yeah, we heard about this joker. He said he could destroy the temple in three days. Come on down the cross. Come on. This shouldn't be so hard. You saved others. You gave back missing limbs. You healed diseases. Those that couldn't walk can now walk. This should be nothing for you. Come on down. And then we'll believe. And while this is going on, you've still got John there. And quite a few of the women who have ministered to him for years as they've been going around. So you've got several Marys and Joanna and Salome. They're all watching their master, the Lord, the one that had the words of life. Who's done no wrong. He's dying. And to their mind, there probably is no hope. We can't rescue him. And even the thieves, even the thieves are both casting their teeth at him, making fun of him, mocking him. You saved others. Come down from the cross. Hey, while you're at it, take us down too. And we know that at some point there was a work of grace on one of those thieves. That he wound up rebuking the other and saying, don't you know that we're in the same condition? Don't you fear God? We're here justly. We did, our, 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 our wrongs have earned this. But this man's done nothing. And he asked Jesus, Lord, when you're coming to your kingdom, remember me. And Jesus gave him the sweetest response. Is that today, today you'll be with me in paradise. That thief earned that. Oh, that's the beauty of grace. We're all that thief. There is nothing in your life that gives you any more merit to Christ, to His work, to claim Him any more than that thief had. Any good that you do, it's only because of the indwelling Holy Spirit, and God gets all the credit for it. If it weren't for His grace, our entire life would be the life of that thief. We have no merits. 
around noon, the sun is going to go dark. And it's going to be dark for about three hours as he hangs there. And this whole process, again, it's about, about a six-hour process as he's hanging there with each breath. And they've tried to mock him even further by offering him something to drink, and it's, it's sour wine mingled with something. At one point it says it's, just, it's wine mingled with myrrh, which would be a pleasant thing. And then this other was the soldiers who were offering him sour wine, vinegar, mingled with gall. And he didn't take either of them. He refused it. And he's hanging there. And as, as they're crucifying him, he said, my father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And then at some point in this process, he is going to cry out to the one that he has always addressed as the Father, the one with whom he has the closest relationship. We cannot imagine the unity between the Father and the Son. And rather than addressing him as Father, he says, my God! My God! Why? Why hast thou forsaken me? Brothers and sisters, you will never have to say that. Not in truth. You may cry out that way at some point because you're so distressed and discouraged, but it's never in truth. The Father is never going to leave you or forsake you the way that He did His darling Son on that cross. Because He who knew no sin took all of your sins upon Him and became sin. And for a time, He was separated from the Father. As he took upon every single sin of every single one of his children that the Father had given him for all of their lives. And he bore it. He was that perfect spotless lamb, the one who had no sin. All of them were put on him. And then later, when he knew that all things were accomplished, he would say, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And he'd ask for something to drink, say, I thirst. And they gave him a little bit of that sour wine. And when he received it, he cried out with that loud, loud voice, the most beautiful words, the ones that we cherish. It is finished. work of redemption was finished. You can't add to it. You can't take away from it. He obeyed his father's will. His father's will was that you would be with him in his family, adopted, holy, and without blame before him in love, and you would be conformed to the image of His Son. And the only way that us vile sinners 
could be there. It's by this sin bearer taking our sins and paying the debt for us. And he allowed himself to die. No man took his life. Gave it up. Now the high priest said, we're running out of time of the day. It's the preparation of the Passover at night times. Well, the new day. We don't want these guys hanging up there. Let's go ahead and wrap this up. And so they go and break the legs of the one thief and then the other. Which makes them die faster. And they get to Jesus and they say, he's already dead. But just in case, because you'd hate to take him down and he'd not be dead. That would be embarrassing. You know, it's Roman who can't complete an execution. They take a spear and they thrust it into his side. And out of it pours water and blood. Which is again fulfilling those prophecies that the Lord had given his Old Testament what he would go through and then because time was short they had to bury him they had to get him put away quickly and so two followers but for secret secret followers Joseph of Arimathea who was afraid of the Jews and Nicodemus who was the one who came to him by night they go and they beg for the body and they wrap him and they put him in Joseph's new tomb which was near at hand and those sisters who had ministered to him for three years, didn't even have the opportunity to honor his body, to bury him in the way that they thought best. They saw where he was marked, where the grave was, and then they had to go home. They had to observe the fast, the Sabbath. It was a high Sabbath, it was with a feast. But the first chance they got, before it was even day, they, they had made their preparation. They had things ready. And so in that dawning of the morning of that first day of the week, they're coming. And it's, it's still dark outside. They're coming. They've got the things that they didn't have a chance. They loved him. This was their master. The one they wanted to sit at his feet and learn from. He's now dead. The last, the least that we could do is to honor his body. And so they come bearing these things, the, the spices and things to, to wrap him in, which was a custom. And as they're getting going, none of the men have come with them. They're there by themselves. And they're debating, how are we going to open up the stone? Not only that, the leaders had said, we remember this guy, he said he was going to, die and come back after three days. We want someone to guard his tomb because we don't want his disciples to come and steal his body and then say, he arose! So Pilate gave him a guard. And they sat for those three days watching and waiting. And as those sisters are coming, an angel comes down from heaven. He rolls away that stone and he sits on it. And those guards are scared out of their mind. They fall out as Dead men. They didn't literally die because they're going to get up and talk about it later, but they fainted out. Right, these are, you know, burly, buff Roman soldiers. Man, boom. I am. Boom. Right? And the angels will come for the sisters, be not afraid. He's not here. He's risen. 
Go tell his disciples. And then Jesus will start to reveal himself to Mary. And then the two disciples will come and they'll see and they'll see the linen over here and the uh, napkin that was wrapped around his head folded over here. And they won't understand and, and Jesus is going to appear time after time after time. And slowly he makes himself known to his disciples and they begin to believe And at one point it says that he was seen by 500 at one time. Do you believe that Jesus is alive today? Amen. If you don't believe that, if he is not risen, there is no point to us being here. We believe that that song of up from the grave, he arose. He arose. He arose victorious. He has ascended up to the right hand of the Father on high and sits down as that high priest who has no more work to perform. He merely has to wait till his enemies are made his footstool. And that will be on that final great and judgment day when all are put under his feet, even death and there'll be no more death Jesus is alive Jesus is king he went through all of this suffering because of his inordinate amount of love for you. It's not ordinary. It's not even quantifiable. It's bigger than you can count. The volume of love that expressed greater love hath no man than he who layeth down his life for his friends. He laid down his life for all his friends. Are we his servants? Absolutely. He doesn't call us servants anymore because he's told us his will. And so what are we here doing? We're worshiping our Father, who loved us so to send His Son, we're worshiping our Lord, and we're waiting. We're waiting for Him to return. Because that's what He's promised. This world is not it. All your hopes and dreams and titles and things that you do here, they're piddling, they're little, they're insignificant comparison to what he has already done and what we will one day see. He has given an inheritance to you and to all of his children. They can't be taken away. Right? It's undefiled. It doesn't fade away. It's uncorruptible. That inheritance is to be with him. That place he said, I go to prepare a place for you that where I am you may be with me also. And he's going to come back. And it's not going to be in some secret location. You don't have to go out to the desert to find him. If someone says, hey, Christ is over here, go find him. No, he told us not to. But rather, it's like lightning. As far as from the east as from the west, you'll be able to see he's coming. In Revelation says, every eye shall behold. In Acts chapter 1, the angel said, when he went up, he ascended into the clouds. They said, what are y'all looking up for? You know that he's going to come back this same way. 
That's who we're looking for. That's what we're waiting on. Y'all, this is reality. This is the reality that we must live in. There's nothing more real than this. And so in Philippians, when it says rejoice in the Lord, it's not just saying be happy. Things aren't hard right now. You don't have any sickness in your family. There's, there's, you, you've got a job, you've got a house, you've got a career, you've got things are okay. Be happy. That's fickle. That's fleeting. That's sinking sand. Those things can be taken away in a moment. That's old Job. You're called to rejoice in someone. The Lord. Not a Lord. The Lord. The Master. The Creator. The Jesus Christ. The Christ. The, the Messiah. The Savior. In who He is and what He's done and what He will do. That's fixed. That's eternal. That's not dependent upon the winds of your life. You can be going through the hardest time that you know of. That's still true. So to rejoice in the Lord is to remember the Lord. And to live in that reality. To not be so narrowed in on the little trials here. Because all the trials here are going to be accounted as nothing. Zero. Nada. Right? If you did something in your science class and you had a really, really, really small number, it would be so small that it rounded down to zero. That's all your trials, a whole life put together compared to the glory that is prepared. To see Him in His glory. I want to know more about my Lord. I want to know more about the fellowship with His suffering. Can I be called the sufferer for Christ's sake in this world? Absolutely I can. That's okay. That's righteous. All that will live righteously shall suffer persecution. It's when we try to have the half measures of like, I like Christ. He's good. But I want people to like me too. Christ is king. Except for in these areas over my life where I really prefer what I like to do better. And so he can be king over there up in heaven. But over here, I'm king. You may not explicitly think these things. But that's how we make those decisions. When we justify, I don't have to serve Christ. Y'all, serving Christ is not optional. Okay? This is a command. If you love me, keep my commandments. By keeping the commandments, you can't earn his love. He already loved you. He already displayed that love to you in the biggest way possible of giving himself for you. This is our king. This is what he has done. And y'all, he's coming back. Sometimes we think that would be great for him to come back, but I really like to do this, this, and this, and this first. I want to do those things. And before then, I really hope I've cleaned up this, this, and this, and this. Right? 
but I've got time for both. You don't know when the Lord's coming. If any man tells you that they know when the Lord's coming, guess what? They're a liar. They're a liar. Scripture says no man knows. I serve a risen Savior. That's who I report to. If I say anything amiss up here, that's who I have to report to. That's scary. Talk about fearing the living God. We should. He's worthy of our fear, our love, our respect, our awe. He is worthy. He's the head of this church, this local body. Jesus is the head. My charge and what I'm to do is in everything that I do should be pointing to him. If I ever point y'all to anything else, call me out on it. The only value that I bring is in pointing to Christ through his word. And if you want to encourage someone else, point him to Christ. Through his word. You can't solve all their problems. Some of their problems don't need to be solved. Sometimes we have problems with the Lord because they're good for us. The Lord can chasten us. The Lord can use trials to purify our faith. He can use things. His ways are higher than mine. I don't claim to understand it all. But I know that I serve a risen Savior. And so if I've got anything that I can tell you, this is the best thing. Right? Right? Let me tell you about the best. Jesus Christ, the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. Now we've got something to rejoice in. Do we have something to rejoice in? We have someone to rejoice in. The Lord, I thank y'all for your time and attention.